Welcome to our 2021 series, Talking Heads, the podcast of the University of Melbourne's Department of Nursing. In this series, we celebrate 25 years of nursing at Melbourne, hearing from each head of nursing over the last quarter century. In today's podcast, we talk with Professor Siobhan Nelson, 2005-2013 Dean and Professor at the Lawrence S. Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing at the University of Toronto. 2014-2018 Vice Provost, Faculty in Academic Life. 2013-2018 Vice Provost for Academic Programs at the University of Toronto. And of course, the 2004-2005 Head of School of Nursing, University of Melbourne. We started talking about what it was like for Siobhan to step into the role of head of school, a role held by only one other person at that time, Professor Judy Parker. I was deputy head for a while. I can't quite remember for how long. You know, I think I really learnt so much just watching her in action. And as everyone who knows Judy is aware, she's just an inordinately generous person. So she always gives people the opportunity to learn. She's very forgiving of any mistakes. I think she probably would never even consider anything a mistake. I just had the best possible mentor and champion in many ways, because whenever you're with Judy, you always feel like you're just brilliant and so much that you can accomplish. And it's Judy reflecting this to you. She's very, very good for morale and forgiving people. I think certainly this was my experience, but I saw her do it with many, giving people not just confidence, but courage, courage to take risks, to reach higher, And to realise that it's all huge fun. It's something to grow and develop and collaborate and create. But of course, Siobhan had been there from almost the beginning. And her time before becoming head of school does sound a bit like head of school preparatory boot camp. Judy mentioned in her remarks that it had been this incredible growth from an idea sitting in those little offices in the cottage, to really building momentum, to getting more and more people involved, to be getting the research, to be getting the graduate students. And I was lucky enough to be one of the first hires through the, through the postdoc that I was awarded uh, by the Faculty of Medicine. And I had a three-year postdoctoral fellowship, which was just fantastic. So I was able to be there devoted to the the project that I was working on and building up a program of research. But at the same time, we were creating this school or Judy was creating a school and I was running with it and I was learning as I was doing. So it was an extraordinary experience. I think if you'd been in a large school, I know if I'd been in a large school, It would have taken me a very long time to understand how graduate programs worked and the approval processes through a university or to understand how you worked with the clinical partners developing programs and where you got the funding from the government or what sort of accreditation where there were credentials involved with the college or the nurses board or those sorts of things. But we were all doing that instantly, all of it together. And so it was... A huge, you know, crash course in academic nursing, nursing education, the politics of a research-intensive university, all of these things at once. 
Judy Parker was nurturing of the School of Nursing leadership team, building confidence to grow and create and courage to move forward. So I wondered how the transition from Judy Parker to Siobhan Nelson had been. Being Judy, she was anxious that she wouldn't crowd you know, her successes space and that nobody would be coming to her for support or guidance. She just took off to another country and was completely unavailable. She was available to me if I called her and so on. But basically she was like, you're all fine. You're all fine. You don't need me. You don't need me. And we really did need Judy. We, we missed her enormously, but it was very much uh, in her in her style to never crowd anybody and to make sure that people had the opportunity to establish themselves as leaders, to um, build the confidence that they need. So that's how I became head of school. With Judy working on another nursing curriculum overseas, where was Siobhan's initial focus as head of school? When Judy stepped down and focused her attention for the next little while on the work that she was doing in Hong Kong, uh, we had a lot of momentum around projects that were running and adjusting to the growth of the school and the establishment of programs and staff and also the very dynamic situation that we had with our clinical partners in terms of what postgraduate courses they wanted run, how many students would be in them and what we could afford and what we couldn't. We'd been established in Shepparton for a little while. That was a big piece of work in the faculty, working with the School of Rural Health. And many people were driving up and down to deliver those programs and work with our colleagues in Shepparton. So all of that was like a really big going concern. Amongst these concerns, there was a perhaps unanticipated learning curve. For the time that I was head of school, my big learning curve was, I think, realising how much Judy did uh, that nobody was aware of until you actually had to try and fill those shoes. And I remember feeling astonished at the pace of her work as I tried to step into just step into her schedule. We had the same wonderful executive assistant, Debbie, and Debbie just slotted me into, replaced Judy and put me in everything. And I was just unconscious by the end of the day. I could barely function. And at the end of a week, I was just, I I just didn't know how I was going to manage it. And it took me a little while. And then I sat down with her and I said, you can't schedule those meetings the way you schedule them for Judy. I, I can't cope. I, I need a break between those. I need to eat. I need to rest. I need to use the bathroom. And I need mental space. I can't jump from a conversation with the ministry to a conversation with the dean on budget to uh, a difficult issue with the regulators to a very upset student. Just flicking between those as Judy could seamlessly. She didn't need any preparation. She could do it all on her head. Whereas for me, it was taxing and I had to gather my thoughts. I had to prepare myself. I had to get my paperwork in order. I had to sort of, you know, proceed thoughtfully into things that I hadn't a lot of experience of doing. So, you know, when you asked me what I was doing, maybe you were thinking, you know, what's my big plan? What was I going to accomplish? And I was like, I just want to manage this job. I want to, I want to be 
able to follow duty and still be erect at the end of the day. And then things started to happen, like the World Bank. And we were successful in getting funding with the World Bank to work with the students in Indonesia, the various colleges in Indonesia, and we had like OTs and PTs and so on. And it was a plan to improve quality of their programs by upgrading the qualifications of their faculty. We partnered with them. We had to work out how we were going to manage you know, the ethics and the research projects for the master's programs. And so there was a lot of work involved in collaborating with Central Java and getting the research teams together to work with the students and our fantastic students. Within this light of the World Bank project, Siobhan spoke of the decision to step back from the Shepparton School. And we also then had to make a decision about Shepparton. Uh, there were, it was, it was very taxing. The role of the, um, the school, the vision of the School of Rural Health, the relationship with La Trobe, what they wanted in, in the city of Shepparton itself and what we could deliver as a very small startup school. Uh, I think, you know, these were all the things that we were, we were grappling with. And in the end, uh, we decided to close the, um, the Shepparton program, which was a very difficult decision. It was obviously a decision that was unwelcome by some quarters. I think it, it all turned out fine in the sense that Latrobe was able just to easily step in and was a logical partner for them. And I think it was, you know, sometimes you, you have the opportunity when you're partnering with faculty of medicine or you're partnering with other health disciplines or health providers to think, you know, we can jump on this, we can work it together. But as I think most people in nursing understand is that nursing can be quite different. There are different relationships. There are different traditional partners. There's a different history of the educational providers in nursing. There's a sort of a different map, if you like, of Victoria when it comes to nursing education than would come to physiotherapy education or to medical education. And sometimes it's quite transgressive to go across those. Sometimes it can be very successful and innovative. I think, you know, Judy referred to some of the things that we were able to do within a faculty of medicine, within a research intensive university that she was so excited about in terms of why the school was created in the first place. But then there are other things that you, you know, you realise it's going to take a lot of energy to maintain, to establish a new relationship when there's a very strong relationship with another educator provider or another clinical partner. And you just have to make pragmatic decisions in the end. It's not about conquering the world. It's about, you know, what is the best uh, way that we can maximise our resources and, and bring the biggest value add to nursing education and to the university. And the Shepparton decision was really based on those. Shepparton sounded to me a clear example of just because you can doesn't mean you should. You need to be more strategic when it comes to a new idea. You need to be strategic and you also need to balance the top-down, bottom-up 
piece. And I've found that like throughout my whole career, and it doesn't just apply to nursing, it applies to most of academia. People can have a great idea, like a president of a university or a dean or another school, another division can have a great idea, like let's do this. But unless it actually makes sense for your context or your department or your school, then people will put a lot of energy into it, but it won't necessarily be successful because the people who deliver the program, the staff, and they know who their students are likely to be. They know what, what the field needs. And so, you know, it really can't be a top down thing. It has to be a conversation between the people who end up are going to be delivering the program, working with the students, working with the clinical partners, whatever is the actual idea, those people need to have input into the idea. It can't just be a great idea that the ministry figured out would be good for nursing education and then we all have to somehow figure out how to make it happen. We do that. We spend a lot of time and energy on those things. And in my experience, many of them have a very short shelf life. That's the other thing about it isn't just because you can do it, you should do it. You also have to think, is this something that is grounded enough or a good enough idea that I'm going to persuade all the staff to do it because it's a brilliant idea rather than all the staff to do it because the budget says it's a good idea and, you know, we'll it's strategic to do and so we have to do it. I mean, you have to balance all of these things at different times. Siobhan outed nursing education as often being misunderstood. But I often think that nursing education is poorly understood by government, it's poorly understood by many of our interdisciplinary colleagues because it's not the same in terms of the way nursing education interfaces between the clinical field and the academy it's a i think that's a unique nursing relationship for good or for worse and i think we end up spending a lot of energy trying to ignore some of the specificities about nursing education and we we find ourselves struggling to persuade our clinical partners to do something or to attract students to a program that everybody thought would be fantastic. So you've got to listen. You've got to listen to to people. You've got to have genuine partnerships from bottom up to top down. And I was interested in Siobhan's thoughts as a historian about this misunderstanding of nursing education. Historically, As an apprentice-based training program, nursing's relationship with the clinical component and versus the education component has always been quite challenging because the university or the school of nursing, even it was the hospital school, well, outside of the hospital, didn't have control over the actual practice experience that the students had. I mean, I found articles that were presented at ICN in, I think it was 1949 ICN, which was in in the States, written by the person who started the School of Nursing at U of T, my school where I am now, Kathleen Russell, 
on the whole idea of having structured clinical practicums. This was a whole new notion. They weren't doing it anywhere. She was bringing it up as, as a model to think about it. And so these were students who weren't in the hospital. They weren't in a hospital school. They were in a university school. They weren't uh, workforce, obviously. But even those students at university didn't have didn't have a model, didn't have a way of thinking about how do you learn clinical skills? How do you learn clinical practice? And so I think if we look at, at many countries, the way that that's happened in the past is it's been, you know, you have preceptors, you have clinical instructors, they go in and they do the work and they have skills that they're meant to tick off and they talk about it. You know, that's sort of, that's sort of it. And it's pretty crude actually. And, and largely this is because of the fact that it's very difficult for the educating, educating establishment, be that a university or a school, to actually dictate anything that happens in the clinical context. Whereas if you're, if you're doing your training and clinical practicum as a physiotherapist or so on, you're one-to-one -one always for a start anyway, and you kind of tag along uh, with your clinical preceptors. They also have internship systems in many of the clinical training programs. They have an acknowledgement that there is a depth of clinical experience that people need that is apart from the pressures of work. Whereas in nursing, even today, even though we have, you know, such a lot of pedagogical knowledge and good understanding about skill acquisition and we have a lot of expertise in our in our schools and in our academies it's still really difficult not to just be sending off the students you know with a wish and a prayer <laughs> i hope they get this out of it i hope it's not too chaotic i hope it's not too traumatic i hope everybody isn't mean to them you know, there's all these things that, that make it very difficult. And so people could have a great idea. Let's do such and such a program. You come to the clinical area and you say, we want to do such and such a program. And they're like, well, we have other priorities. We're very busy. We, and I, you know, I don't know that that's what other professions hear all the time. So it is challenging. Nursing education is very difficult. We don't have the control over those practice experience. You look at medicine, and it's different in different jurisdictions. I know the way that it's organised, but basically it's taken so seriously, the skill acquisition of physicians and the way the medical accreditation bodies work is just painstaking to make sure that the students have those kind of experiences. It's also painstaking to make sure they have positive experiences. I, know, I don't imagine Australia is any different. I'm more familiar with Canada now, but it's very, very serious when the accreditors come through for the specialist programs and the fellowship programs. If those trainees report that they've been getting abuse or any negative experience and so on, they, they don't get their accreditation. Like it is meaningful oversight. And we don't have that meaningful oversight. We don't check that these are positive experiences, that they're getting modelled appropriately, appropriate professional behaviours, that they're, that they're not witnessing people being humiliated, you know, those sorts of things, which medicine pays enormous attention to. And I just feel that it's the, still the big frontier.
for nursing education to actually address those issues. But right now with the pandemic and with the huge crisis in staffing that we're facing now around the world, I just, I, I am worried uh, about the clinical environment that we're sending students into. I'm not sure that that applies everywhere, but it's certainly the case here. We're losing staff, it's very short staffed, and our students are, I think, really having to face a steep learning curve and step up and be part of the team very, very quickly. So it's hard to conceive of how we would even frame this conversation right now with our clinical partners because they're all at their wits end. So nursing has this conundrum in a way that I don't see other health professions having this very conversation or making these observations. When Siobhan was head of school, the entry to practice program had been running one or two years, but the main program offerings were still in the post-registration postgraduate space, and most of these were master's degrees. This is a good example of the sort of particularities about nursing. In many places, the master's degree had shifted to a more generic master's program rather than a specialist program. The, the re reality of actually running a um, orthopedic specialist program, you know, one year in orthopedics and the second year in the research and, and methods and so on, it just wasn't feasible. It was, that was like an old model of the hospital-based post-basic training programs. And so we had this tension where you could see that the clinical area really wanted to have the possibility of training up staff to have a depth of specialist knowledge, but they wanted it to be at a graduate level at a university, which is you know, a bit tricky. And, but they also wanted it in so many subspecialties that it would have been it just wasn't possible. Nobody was doing it because in other parts of the world and so on, people aren't doing it because it, you need critical numbers to run a program. And unless you're running a fellowship program, which has good funding from the government, you can't run these, these small numbers of programs. So we've, we, in a way where we were, I think, was at the end of one model of advanced practice not even talking it as education, but of advanced practice and at the beginning of a new one. Because where we are now with advanced practice, I think in most places, is that the curriculum is fairly broad, but you can bring your focus to that curriculum. So you can do all of your assignments and your project in oncology nursing or psychiatric mental health nursing, though that group of colleagues really hates that suggestion in my experience but <laughs> but it's realism you know because you can't run 30 master's programs with different curriculum you have to run one master's program with 100 students who are doing the different subspecialties it's what everybody else does around the world so I think where the school of nursing at Melbourne was we were at that cusp at a transition and Judy's brilliance was we were able to look at the legacy of 
of an older hospital-based model and use it to kind of shift into a postgraduate school of nursing that then became a broader school of nursing. It's like a good policy case study, I think, to see how you've got windows of opportunity and you've got people like Judy, they always take them and you steer it into, you don't necessarily know where it's going to land in the end, but it is a way of steering change and being able to help lead for the future in education. Towards the end of Siobhan's time as head of school, a significant educational change was afoot. The University of Melbourne's pioneering Melbourne model, all specialty and professional degrees would become postgraduate offerings and all undergraduate degrees would be generalist and breadth offerings. The nursing entry to practice bachelor program would become a postgraduate master's in the new Melbourne model. When I began, Alan Gilbert was the Vice-Chancellor and he was followed by Glyn Davis. And Glyn is somebody who's a big thinker in terms of vision and brand and he just arrived. I had a few conversations with him and he was very committed to making Melbourne stand apart from its competitors or from others. And so I think my role there was to actually make sure that we were part of these conversations, that we could be engaged with the broader faculty as it was trying to digest this new direction. It was a very consultative time just before I left. Things weren't finalised. My feeling after I left was that I had been, you know, steering things in a time of change, but it wasn't me who actually introduced the Melbourne model. And that was a huge thing that had to happen, like quick, quick, quick. And it was my colleagues who pulled that together. We were just, we were just sort of realising what it involved for us because we basically just started an undergraduate program. So the, the whole curriculum had to be changed to a graduate level curriculum. So what was this time of epic changes like for Siobhan as a relatively new head of school? You know, between Judy leaving and the Melbourne model coming, I was there as we were carrying through projects. I was figuring out where the school stood within the faculty and that continued to evolve. So that didn't feel like a certain or a stable place then either. It was a, it was a very interesting period. It felt like you were in this fast moving river and you were on a series of rafts rather than even on one big raft because you know the school's relationship to the faculty shifted the undergraduate degree that we were so proud of was about to move the postgraduate program that had been our whole basis the foundation was you know it was at the end of its lifespan and it really was time to shift into you know a more generic masters that people then applied to their specific areas and so on and the Shepparton campus was closing down. We were doing this World Bank project in, in Indonesia. So there were all these things sort of happening. I remember I felt like we were a bit tied to a mast in a storm. And I was just really happy that the ship 
didn't sink, <laughs> that we didn't hit the rocks, that nothing like that happened, that nothing bad happened to us. And it, I mean, it sounds like a lame thing to be happy about, but I, I, I don't sort of feel like it's the accomplishments that I can take credit for as head as opposed to having been part of a team as we built the graduate program, as we did these other sorts of things. I think as the, the head, my accomplishments was keeping us strapped to that rock, you know, I don't know if my, if my metaphor is still working, but to, to actually keep us afloat during that storm and to make sure we could keep navigating all the things that were happening. It was a very dynamic and fast-changing environment. Does Siobhan think that going down that river and surviving the top-down of nursing education and university life has led to her own journey in and up academia? I absolutely think so. I still think... And it could have just been because it was my first leadership job as, you know, as head of school. I don't think I've done, there's not much that I've done that's harder than being head of school there. We had a vision, we had goals, but we didn't have control over so many of the factors that were going to influence those. I think that I learned so much doing that. I learned so much from Judy. I learned a lot about university politics. I learned a lot about the complexity of the external context for nursing education in terms of government, clinical partners, all of those sorts of things, workforce issues, regulators. It's a bit different to being a chair in the Department of History, I think. You know, you've just got so many of these of these elements to nursing education which is why as an historian and somebody with an interest in policy, it's so fascinating. But I think that it allowed me to learn how to keep all of those horizons in view at once, rather than just thinking about the university and thinking about the School of Nursing or just thinking about the hospital education piece or, or whatever. Like you've got in nursing to be thinking in all of these different dimensions and that teaches you political skill and it teaches you you know relationships and so on how to make strategic relationships and also how to have you know quite difficult conversations and mediate between parties and what I ended up doing within the University of Toronto is I um, the roles that I took at a at a university level were to do with um, academic quality, academic programs and policy, and matters to do with faculty hiring, promotion, tenure, negotiation, grievances, and so on. So these sort of big, big domains. But I feel that many of the competencies, to use a good nursing term, that I had to bring into that work to be effective were ones that I learnt at the University of Melbourne in that brief period as head of school. There was a lot of complexity to get my head around. There was a lot of, of frank and difficult conversations to have between, as you do in any time of a lot of change and of instability. And I think you, um, you learn how to 
get people on the same page, to be candid about what are some of the challenges and figure out how to resolve them and to lead people forward. You also learn how to bring people with you. I mean, Judy is just so good at that and I can't hold a candle to her, but I did learn what I know from her. So we came full circle with a nod and salute to Professor Judy Parker. We finish each episode with three questions. How did you end up doing nursing? Advice to people thinking about nursing? And advice to new graduates? I'd always wanted to do nursing, I think, from quite a young age. I used to visit an aunt who was sick in St Vincent's and I used to, I went to a school very close to that and I used to go and see her after school and I was always kind of, curious as to what people were doing behind curtains I think it was sort of nosiness to be honest I kind of wanted to be on the other side of the curtain I didn't end up going into nursing I was discouraged by everyone from doing it because I was considered too academic those were the days where if you were academic they said oh don't be a nurse if you're academic so I went to university I did an honours history degree and then some years later There were some programs around that if you had a degree, they were a bit shorter, you know, that kind of thing. So I I guess I learned about that and I thought about that. In the end, I did a regular uh, three-year training program at the Royal Darwin Hospital. It was a great place to learn. There's a lot of culture, a lot of indigeneity, a lot of remoteness a lot of pathology, like all sorts of really interesting things about that place. And uh, it was a great program, actually. And I was just at the very end of the hospital-based program. They were just moving into the college sector in the next couple of years. So I did the New South Wales registration exam and um, I topped New South Wales my registration exam. But less that sounds like just a complete boast, somebody, a student did the year after me and they brought in a midwifery program um, and the same year that I taught New South Wales, so did the midwife, one of the midwife students. So it was a very good school is the point that I'm making here. It was actually an excellent school. Even though it was a hospital-based program, we had no late early shifts. We didn't, you know, like we were treated as students. It was, we were always supernumerary. It was very progressive. I had the best possible hospital experience. Eventually, uh, when I decided to go to graduate school, I started to do a nursing master's and and then I, I transferred over to MPhil PhD program because all questions just presented themselves as historical ones to me. For people thinking about nursing, the the breadth and the depth and the possibilities, just can't overestimate them. And I I think it's very hard to explain that to people um, from outside of nursing. I was talking to my undergraduate students the other day, we were doing a thing, and many of them were commenting on what they first thought about nursing when they went into nursing and what they think about nursing now in terms of how much responsibility nurses have, how critical the work is to patient outcomes, how much nurses need to know to do their work. So these are people who've come into nursing, want to do nursing, and they're gobsmacked. 
by how much they have to learn and how hard it is and so on. It's a very interesting, very challenging, very worthwhile profession. And anyone that's got any interest at all should really reach out to people and learn more about it. I hate boring jobs. I hate being bored. I've never been bored doing nursing. I don't think it's possible. You know, this is a really difficult time. I'm not sure what the um, employment situation is in in Melbourne, but I know that here, um, say two or three years ago, when students were finishing their program, very few of them were being hired straight away. Most of them were taking a few months. They were all getting jobs, but they weren't getting jobs straight away. Now we're back to where we were like maybe five or 10 years ago more where everyone's getting hired in their final placement. Their people are competing for students, wanting, saying, you know, I'll write you a reference, please apply here, all of this sort of thing. And I think it's very important for students to look at what the employer is offering them in terms of support. What supports are in place for new grads? What kind of, are there mental health supports? Are there wellness supports? Is it committed to looking after its staff? You've got your pick now. It doesn't happen very often. You should have your expectations that you will be looked after and that you won't be exhausted and burnt out too quickly because it's a very tough time. We're in a pandemic. Everybody wants nurses. Everybody needs nurses. And you should, you should be discriminating. You should look at the quality of the working environment and choose ones that you think you can grow in and you can develop. The other good news is that colleagues are telling me that the new grads that have recently started, and this is in the middle of the pandemic that was actually in the, in the beginning of our fourth wave, that they've been such a morale boost for everyone, that it's just fantastic to have the new grads that they're great, they know so much, they're so keen, they want to contribute, they want to help, and that it's been really important to the morale in units to have people that haven't gone through the pandemic, that aren't so exhausted, uh, coming on on the units and helping deal with things. So I think graduating now in the middle of a pandemic, it's just such a significant time and you can make a big contribution and I wish you well, but look after yourself and choose to work somewhere where they're gonna look after you. We thank Siobhan Nelson for her time today and for sharing generously as the second head of school of nursing at the University of Melbourne. In our next Talking Heads podcast, we speak with the third head of school, Professor Sancha Aranda. Until next time.